0: Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler, and today we are going to talk about the good and bad week for Amazon, contact tracing apps, the future of gadget charging, and much more. Today's episode is brought to you by Lark. If you are working remotely, you might be tired of having your calls cut short because you're not paying. Lark is a collaboration suite that provides free video calls for teams with unlimited minutes. On Lark, you can enjoy smooth and reliable calls for up to 100 participants, as well as advanced screen sharing. You can even co-edit documents with teammates from right within the video call window. Get Lark for free at larksuite.com techeu tech EU. Again, that's L.A rksuitcom dot com slash T-E-C-H-E-U. Today, I am very happy to be joined by Natalie Novik, the Chief Community Officer at Startup Boost and the former co-host of this podcast. Hi, Natalie, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. Glad to lend a hand this week to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for this. It's also so great to see you again and be able to talk to you on air.
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure to come back.
0: Now, before we dive into the topics of the day, and we've got a bunch, uh, let's take a three minute break and catch up with the most important European tech news with our reporter, Annie Musgrove.
2: Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. Amazon has suspended its distribution activity in France after a court ruled it had to stop all non-essential deliveries during the coronavirus pandemic, CNN Business Reports, The ruling on Tuesday followed the filing of a complaint by a French labor union, which accused the online delivery giant of endangering the lives of its workers. In a statement on Wednesday, the company said it was, quote, perplexed by the court ruling, which it plans to appeal. A few hours later, though, Amazon announced that it's shutting down its French warehouses. Dutch hotel booking giant Booking.com has applied for help from the government to keep paying its salaries, Dutch News reports. Until recently, Booking.com was one of the most profitable companies in the Netherlands, but it's not the case anymore, as the number of bookings has supposedly plummeted to just 15% of those this time last year. Booking told the FD in a statement that it's grateful for the government support, which is helping the company prevent redundancies and to meet short-term financing requirements. The European Commission has published guidance on the development of new contact tracing apps that support the fight against coronavirus in relation to data protection. It comes in the form of a so-called toolbox, which outlines the Commission's position and sets a range of requirements for the apps, such as the full compliance with data protection and privacy rules, the voluntary nature of the apps, the usage of anonymized data, interoperability across the EU, and more. London-born identity verification startup Onfido has raised $100 million in a new round of funding. The round, which was led by TPG Growth, brings Onfido's total funding to $200 million, according to the company. CEO Hussein Kasai said that the company is, quote, standardizing the way everyone proves their real identity, in a similar way to how Facebook has standardized the way everyone shares their social identity, and LinkedIn has standardized the way everyone signals their professional identity. The new funding will be used to invest in machine learning technology, consolidate existing markets, and keep up with demand in new areas, according to a statement from the company. In terms of expansion, the United States is on Fido's key core market, followed by Europe, the company wants to expand into Germany and then Southeast Asia. Amsterdam City Council will ban tourist rentals in the heart of the Old City and part of the canal area from July 1st. Housing Alderman Lawrence Evans said that, quote, Local residents should be able to enjoy living in their own neighborhood. They're already having to deal with the consequences of tourism on the street, so it's important that they do not experience problems in their own areas as well. The city is also bringing in permits for holiday rentals in the rest of the city. These are some of the most important European tech news stories from the week of April 13th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre.
0: Thank you so much, Annie. Now we are all caught up and uh, let's go for it. So the first topic from me today is Amazon. The company had a really hectic week in Europe and I just wanted to uh, give some more detail on what's happened. First up, the bad part. That's Amazon's trouble in France, which Annie just mentioned. First, on Tuesday, the company was ordered by a French court to greatly restrict orders it can accept and limit them by groceries, hygiene and health-related products. Amazon was given 24 hours to comply and after that it would have to pay a fine of 1 million euros per day for not complying. So the restriction has been imposed for one month, but could be extended later if the authorities decided to do so. And to add some context here, uh, already at least one Amazon warehouse employee in France has been diagnosed with coronavirus. And the workers' union has asked before that Amazon closes down its warehouses altogether to protect the employees, but to no avail. So the day after the court ruling on Wednesday, Amazon announced that it will do just that shut down all six of its warehouses in France and the warehouses, they actually employ a total of some 10,000 people. And Amazon initially said that it would shut them down at least until April 20. That is Monday, the day this podcast goes live. On the same day, on Wednesday, Amazon confirmed that its vice president of the European Union segment Roy Perticucci stepped down. There is very little detail available on that, but I don't think this is a big coincidence here. Now, as of Friday, April 16, there was no clarity yet as to whether Amazon would indeed reopen the warehouses on Monday. The chief executive of French Amazon, Frederic Duval, said on Friday that he hopes to reopen the warehouses, quote-unquote, very quickly, and mentioned that it is connected to the appeal that Amazon has already made. And while I was reading this news, my main question was, okay, fine, you've got the court order, you're going to appeal it, so why shut down the damn warehouses? And the answer to this, as far as I understand now, seemed to be in what Duval said in an interview uh, for the local RTL radio. Uh, The quote begins, there is a huge ambiguity. Is a nail clipper a hygiene product? Is a condom a medical item? I'm not able to define that, the quote ends. So the issue as far as I understand is that Amazon isn't sure what it still can sell. But also I would guess that uh, it just can't easily limit the range of products it sells. And with that in mind, there is indeed a pretty big chance that it would have to pay the 1 million uh, euros per day in fines. So what, what I can gather from all this is that Amazon would only reopen uh, its warehouses if they managed to uh, find a way to work around uh, this uh, court order. Uh, because they are just not able to uh, do what uh, the court uh, uh, what the court prescribes. So, Natalie, what do you think of this situation? Is it actually justified in times like these that a government would order a private company, that is Amazon, of what it cannot cannot and cannot sell?
1: Yeah. So, Amazon and the country of France have. Been having issues, perennial issues, for a long time now, uh, especially with regards to labor rights and where it can operate its warehouses. And of course, it is justified that a government can order a private company to do certain things, and that's what regulation is for. Uh, we've seen it in the UK also that um, to prioritize the selling of kind of these more in demand products right now, so groceries and same. But it's also here not very clear of what those are. And companies have been interpreting that very differently. Um, But I think that that's what the role of government is. They they're able to prioritize what needs to be done for the good of the country um, and kind of it is justified to take that away from private companies if, if it is necessary, like it seems to be in this case.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree. And as far as I understand, in the US, actually, Amazon is making an effort uh, not to limit to, to the essentials, but kind of find ways to encourage people to only buy the essential things uh, to kind of lessen the pressure on uh, the whole uh, delivery and logistics system. But uh, I guess they are just very much against the idea that the government would, uh, would, would actually order uh, them to not sell anything else.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I completely understand that and I empathize with the situation, but I don't think we should feel too badly for Amazon because they are uh, their stock prices is, is going through the roof right now. They're one of the few companies that's really benefiting significantly from COVID. Uh, so I think it's only fair that everyone has to pull together um, in an effort to help. Uh, ease some of the the relief on supply chain and also on those vulnerable workers in the warehouses who have um, really no other alternative um, to be sharing space with people that might be infected. A similar case happened. There's an Amazon warehouse um, it next next to me in the in the in the adjacent town. Um, and a similar case happened there as well, uh, so I think it, it is fair for the government to step in because obviously the workers' rights were not um, not being upheld in this case, and despite their um, their pleas, no one was listening. So it's that's when the government has to come in.
0: But in the UK, it's still business as usual, is it uh, for Amazon?
1: Uh, they are prioritizing uh, kind of these um, in-demand grocery items right. and medical supplies. But just this week, they've sort of eased off on some of those restrictions and that they're now um, opening up to sell other types of products. But the the wait time for those is very, very long. So even if you are a Prime member, don't expect to get it the next day as you used to be able to. Um, some of the things are coming um, in the several weeks out. But that is a similar case again for all ty- types of online retailers at this at this time.
0: Yeah. Also, just a couple of weeks ago, Amazon officially uh, opened uh, in the Netherlands, which was not the case. We didn't have a full uh, Amazon before that. We only had the books and now we have everything. And could you find a worse time to launch in a country than this? (laughs) Amazon.nl, Amazon.nl is now like a desolate place. There are very few things that uh, you might want to buy. It's just, I guess, it's just uh, nothing is working the way it's supposed to. It's not being populated by like all the entrepreneurs who merchants who sell stuff uh, on there. So yeah, I, for one, still order if I have to from from the German one, because I can't find anything in the Netherlands.
1: But I imagine that that won't be the case for long. And they'll come up to speed. If anyone is able to move Agile in this type of environment, it's Amazon.
0: Oh yeah, that's for sure. That's, that's how they were built. And uh, of course, also this uh, uh, bad part was not everything that happened to Amazon this week. There was the good part. And that comes surprisingly from the uk and it's quite positive so the uk's competition watchdog the cma has provisionally cleared amazon's investment in deliveroo can you believe it we have we spoke about it so many times with you natalie and now it is probably going to happen and it appears that the decision itself was made in light of a deterioration let's put it this way in deliveroo's financial position as a result of the coronavirus outbreak and i'm gonna quote a great passage from the ft that sums it up amazingly the quote begins a senior competition lawyer with knowledge of the matter Said that the CMA was worried about being left with a corpse on its hands The individual said the watchdog appeared to have moved faster than it ordinarily might have In order to avoid blocking a deal where the target had failed No one wants to be left holding a dead delivery The person said The quote ends So this is uh, it is what it is, I guess But it's really interesting how this, uh, this whole thing will pan out
1: yeah, that that is really interesting, especially because it has been such a long time coming and that this deal was really criticized from a number of different sides. So uh, it worked out for them well in this case. But you wonder um, if it was business as usual, if this would have gone through. And yeah. also this point that, you know, thinking that this firm might not have continued because of the coronavirus. Well, uh, food delivery is still up and running here in the UK and elsewhere. So. Um, I understand there are a number of concerns about it and it hasn't um, been a business as usual for them, but it is one of the businesses that has been um, affected to a lesser extent than some of the others.
0: And just as a side note by the way also this week uh, the same uh, authority the CMA it also cleared uh, uh, some uh, things about uh, the merger of uh, Just Eat and uh, takeaway.com because it also kind of blocked uh, the merger uh, for some sort of investigation and uh, this week it decided to just uh, drop the whole thing and let uh, let them merge. So in some way uh, the whole outbreak thing sort of worked in favor of uh, the consolidation part uh, of the market at least
1: yeah, and I imagine across Europe you'll see similar types of actions, so areas where there was some some controversy or legislation that was uh, going on, maybe you'll see that those barriers cleared in an effort to get business moving again. Could imagine we might see that, so keep an eye on it, andre
0: yeah, surely, so anyway, what was your topic? What did you bring?
1: Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit this week about contact tracing and the effort to build a contact tracing app in Europe to contain the coronavirus. And since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, techies around the world have been jumping in to help and to find ways to alleviate the impact of the virus. And I think the response by the tech and startup community has been one of the most positive things that has taken place over the past months as the virus has taken hold whether it's through hackathons that you talked about last week uh, or the EU um, EU versus virus hackathon is happening this weekend. Um, I'm helping to support this worldwide Techstars remote startup weekend event that's out aiming to fight COVID-19. Um, I'm jumping on to assist the I- Irish team. So go Ireland. Um, but Beyond hackathons, we've also seen incredible work by entrepreneurs, hackers, and makers everywhere just pitching in to support their communities, whether it is to print face shields for frontline health workers, to ventilator parts, to building apps to support the vulnerable people um, in our communities all across the continent. But most of these have been done in a spirit of service to the community or done for altruistic way um, to collectively fight the virus together but there's also those that are looking at the virus as a new business opportunity. And when so much is done for good, sometimes there's a lack of clarity around the motivations about these efforts, especially because things are changing very quickly and it's not always possible to have complete information when you're trying to evaluate them. So here is a story about a much bigger ongoing controversy that's been brewing across Europe in relation to the COVID virus. It's really a doozy and developing by the day. So strap in, um, it's, it's, it gets really juicy. So one of the best ways to contain the spread of the virus is through a method called contract tracing which has been used effectively in asian countries such as south korea to limit new infections contact tracing involves identifying those individuals who have come in contact hence the name with infected individuals and preventing them from spreading the virus further doing this manually is laborious and you might think well there should be an app for that well Last month, a group of researchers from Oxford University wrote a research paper that advocated just for this, suggesting an app-based contact tracing method could, if deployed at scale, could be effectively used to contain the virus. The researchers noted that transmission rates in Europe seem to be appearing faster between individuals as compared to the early cases in Wuhan. They suggest that manual tracing of contacted individuals would be too slow, but an app could speed up the process significantly. How, how this would work, and I'll quote from the article here, quote, begins, Once they have been confirmed as cases, individuals identified by tracing can trigger further tracing, as can their contacts, and so on. It goes on to say that if testing capacity is limited, individuals who are identified by tracing may be presumed confirmed upon onset of symptoms, end quote. This is important, especially as it's become increasingly clear that many COVID cases are asymptomatic. But given the EU's strict privacy regulations, contact tracing apps in Europe have not yet been deployed, but researchers are working on them. Last week, the European Commission published guidance for such an app alongside a toolbox of efforts that are ongoing across the continent. One of the names that jumps out at you is the highly alliterative Pan-European Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracing Initiative, or the PEPP-PT. Uh, this is how they're known um, across the internet, but I will call them PEP for the remainder of this podcast because um, that's just too many P's for me to speak about. Uh, it just So it's a little bit easier. So the PEP has emerged as a leading entity when it comes to developing such a technology to measure proximity while adhering to the EU privacy regulations. In this case, the consortium is advocating for the use of Bluetooth communications between devices as a proxy to measure the risk of transmission. As of last week, a number of countries have expressed interest in building apps utilizing PEPs approach, including Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and Spain. But in the race to develop a contact tracing technology at scale, PEP quickly became one of the front runners, and the group claims they have over 200 scientists and technologists working on the project, according to initiator done by the project's co-initiator done by Reuters last week. Their website counts affiliations from across Germany to Ireland to Belgium and includes ENRIA, which is France's research institute. So it sounds like this group comes with pretty high credentials. And the project received more press last week when Italian startup Mending Spoons, who's previously known for their video editing tools, announced that they were developing an Italian app using PEP's approach. But the project has increasingly come under criticism in the past days, chiefly by supporters of decentralized protocols and the open source community. They who have said the project is too secretive. There are concerns that a centralized system, which is not open to review by external experts, can't be examined for bugs or backdoor security vulnerabilities, which PEP appears to be. In response, the PEP project said they would publish their documentation, which they did as published as a one-page PDF on GitHub, but quickly pulled it down. Also pulled from the main website was any mention of the Decentralized Protocol Proposal, the Decentralized Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracing, uh, DP3T, uh, which was one of the original members of the consortium and was among the first to raise concerns about the group's lack of transparency and centralized structure. So speaking to Coindesk, Kenneth Patterson, an original member of the consortium and professor at the Applied Cryptography Group at ETH Zurich said, the closed system would be, quote, this opens the gates to privacy hell. It would give governments the ability to build a social graph for everyone who downloads the app, i.e., they could trivially figure out who is in close proximity to whom. To be useful in tracking COVID-19, the apps would have to be taken up by at least 60% of the population, according to a paper published in Science. This all then becomes a wet dream for security services, end quote. And what might be no surprise, a centralized opaque system for contact tracing appears to contradict the EU's own guidelines. Over the weekend, the original prominent supporters of the PEP consortium have begun to walk away from the project, including Marcel Salathe and ETH Zurich. Further concerns have been raised from open internet advocates across social media as it becomes more and more clear how little transparency there is for the PET project, who is behind it, and what their true motivations really are. Nadim Kobiasi, an applied cryptography researcher and consultant from Paris, has investigated the controversy extensively. His examination makes a great read, which I'll have Andre link to in the show notes. Kobieski suggests that the entire PEP project appears to be a quote, attempt to capitalize on the fear and uncertainty of major European institutions during the COVID 19 pandemic in order to drag them into a group which the leader of the project leads, but which is nevertheless opaque, centralized, ill managed, and untrustworthy, unquote. These are some bold claims, but as of yet, despite getting significant support, the PEP project has not been transparent about its documentations or the technologists working on the projects. So, as the situation continues to unfold, where does this leave us? Well, for one thing, Europe is still without a contact tracing app. Infighting and uncertainty might make the deployment of such an app a moot point, as the virus has already taken hold across quite a lot of the continent already. There's even talk of utilizing Google and Apple's shared API, which is further controversial as both of the tech giants are currently embroiled in a number of anti-competition, privacy and taxation lawsuits across the continent. So maybe the resolution passed last week by the European Parliament says it best. And I'll quote a selection here from the adopted provision that was passed on Friday. Quote, the pandemic has shown the limits of the union's capacity to act decisively, end quote.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talking about uh, these uh, contact tracing apps uh, have been done uh, recently. I'm really I'm really not sure what I think about it, like about any of the ideas. So this PEp thing really seems shady from what I just heard from you, and uh, the Google and Apple thing looks better, but it has a bunch of uh, sort of complications and uh, issues uh, that were raised on Twitter and just by like security experts, because like in some ways it could be. Uh, flawed in terms of uh, anonymity and uh, privacy. But uh, on the other hand, if we remove those flaws, then it's probably just not going to work properly. So one way or the other, yeah, I can see that it is It is a pretty big problem for, uh, for Europe, but also for uh, on the global level too.
1: Yeah, so I would encourage anyone that's even remotely interested in this to check out Kobiese's work. Um, he's obviously an expert in this area, and he's done a complete um, investigation of all the different claims um, and it uh, analyzed the different players that are involved. Um, and it really does give a lot of support to kind of encouraging us to think that, you know, maybe we need to look into this more deeply. Uh, and it also highlights some of the limitations of the EU's approach in um, Kind of advocating for what partners to work with, um, in terms of developing um, these sorts of uh, technologies.
0: But just to make it clear, uh, this uh, whole PEP thing has not uh, received uh, any sort of encouragement uh, from on the European uh, Union level.
1: So uh, the PEP consortium has um, been written about in the EU toolbox that was Mm -hmm. uh, um, advocated last week as one of the um, projects that is going on. A number of EU member states um, have expressed interest that they are working um, with the project um, but it's not necessarily clear what that that link looks like. Uh, so um, I think it really does give some, um, as a lot of these developments have happened over the weekend, um, it gives uh, some further um, encouragement to, to look into um, what actually those links actually are.
0: I can already see the fragmentation issue here. Really, because uh, if you, if you uh, read uh, that uh, toolbox thing by the European uh, Commission, it says that uh, the contact tracing app, if we get one, should be interoperable across the European Union. And if we have these uh, several projects, then having them interoperable, that's going to take longer time than getting a vaccine from goddamn COVID-19. It's just It's just not going to work.
1: Mm-hmm. Mhm especially because the Pep project um, they are it is a centralized solution that then would be licensed to different governments and that's what the um, open protocol advocates are really highlighting as being um, a, a real a real potential danger especially because it's centralized in the hands of whom um, and there is only a few people that are uh, named that are at the head of this project. Um, everyone else has um, is, is not been publicly shared um, as you would kind of expect with something like this. Uh, so uh, it 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 is kind of a, a really juicy controversy and I'm only scraping the surface here, uh, but it's something that I think would uh, be really interesting for further um, examination, especially as it continues to unfold.
0: Yeah. What could possibly go wrong here, you know? <laughs> and it's it, it really reminds me of some of the shadiest uh, shadiest uh, blockchain ico related projects that uh, i have seen
1: yeah and i think uh the blockchain example is a very good one because you see with the best blockchain projects that there is transparency there um exactly. regardless if you believe it or not it's open it's transparent it's well documented and you actually have the opportunity to evaluate it for yourself and this currently doesn't have that um, happening uh so but you also have this added layer of we have to move fast because this is a pandemic and this is a real a situation that's affecting everyone and people are dying so you have a number of different constraints there like you want to be able to act fast but you want to act rationally Um, who you want to be able to trust where are the credentials really challenging so um, I think this will be really interesting to follow
0: I can only hope that even if this particular thing uh, doesn't work uh, we still will be able to use uh, this situation to kind of work uh, work out a framework or something for the European Union to act more quickly in a situation like this because it's probably not the last time when we have to. Definitely. Now, it is time for us to move on with the agenda of the episode. And uh, first, a shout out to our sponsor. Tech EU podcast is brought to you by Lark. If you are managing a remote team, you might want to try this next generation office suite. Lark seamlessly brings together chat, video conferencing, documents, calendar, and so much more. More, you can enjoy smooth video calls for up to 100 participants with unlimited minutes and advanced screen sharing. Get started for free at slash tech eu. Again, that's L A R K S U I T slash T E C H E U. And it's time for the featured interview of this episode. So I wanted to share with you a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with Giovanni Fili, the founder of Exiger. Headquartered in Stockholm, Exiger is working on what could possibly result in a big shift in how we charge our gadgets without even thinking about it. Okay, I will just let Giovanni do the talking,
3: and let's hear it now. So Exager is a Swedish deep tech company. We're based here in Stockholm. We have a factory with 120 employees. We develop and manufacture a new kind of solar cells that uh, are quite unique in many different aspects, and I'll be happy to... Tell you more about that during this podcast. Right.
0: So before we go to the product, let's talk quickly about the company. So how big is the company right now in terms of uh, revenue, employees, sales, whatever metrics you have for yourselves?
3: So I started the company in 2009. Now we're 120 employees. Our factory is around 3,200 square meters, where we have a labs, we have a production, we have a research, we have everything under one roof. Uh, we are about to launch the first pro- ship the first products this year on the market after almost uh, 11 and a half years of development. And it started out with a nano inven- invention, basically. And now we have a real big factory with ISO 9001 and all that. So, our first uh, big customer we signed was uh, the o- first official one last year was Harman Group, which is Samsung, uh, and their brand JBL. So we're going to start shipments this year unless the coronavirus kills the entire industry or delays it. Right.
0: Is it the JBL as in the speakers and that kind of thing?
3: Yes, exactly. So the first product will be a self-powered headphone with JBL. Wow, this is really interesting.
0: Okay, so what took 11 and a half years to develop? What's the tech?
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, we started out with a new nanotech invention. And then we made that into a component and then we made a new solar cell from it. And uh, we realized after a few years that uh, this had a huge potential because we can screen print this solar cell, uh, which allows us the free form uh, design. We can print it like you print on a paper, you can print any design, right? Any pattern or logos or text or pictures we okay. are the yeah so we are the only ones in the world that uh, can produce a solar cell without the traditional silver lines that you see that cross the surface of uh, all the other kind of cells we don't need that we're the only ones who have we have a big homogeneous surface we can do this in different shapes different colors different textures you can have the texture so it looks like leather it can look like wood brushed steel textile or many other cool um, um, Texture. So this allows us to integrate and it's flexible. It's plastic, I should mention.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's very, it's very thin. It's below well, let's say it's slightly below one millimeter thick.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So these, these characteristics allow us to integrate the, the our, our product, which is called power foil. Uh, so we can integrate power foil in existing products that already sell in the hundreds of millions. Giving them uh, eternal battery life, basically, just by you doing nothing at all. Right. So if you take, yeah. So if you look at the JBL headphones, for example, uh, uh, you just wear them normally, and you won't have to bother about charging them. They will recharge from in, indoor light and outdoor light.
0: Okay, this sounds this, this sounds really uh, really attractive. So there, there must be a catch, though. Is it is yeah, it very expensive
3: catch, or what is it? No, it's not very expensive. I mean, the catch is 12 years and 100 million euro of investments and people, you know, working for so many years. That's the catch, I would say. I mean, you can't, it's extremely low probability of success. It's like one in, I can't remember exactly now, but it's lo- more difficult than developing a, a new medicine to develop a right. deep tech company to. So I would say that we have been lucky, we've been skilled as well. Uh, so we've managed to sort of come across and surpass and defeat or sort of achieve a lot of things that were almost impossible to achieve. Uh, the catch now is, I think the world economy is the problem that uh, you see the demand side is weak due to the to the virus, and but this will pass, and we have a very strong financial position. We have investors such as SoftBank on board, and a lot of Swedish money. Actually, everything except SoftBank is Swedish money. We have the Swedish pension funds on board, and uh, another very strong Swedish uh, industrial family. So, we have we can easily uh, survive this pandemic. We have money for several years in the bank, actually. If even if we wouldn't get in any other one more penny from anyone. So we're in a pretty strong situation now, I would say.
0: Right. And uh, and how much uh, how much money uh, have you uh, raised over the years in total?
3: Yeah, so we have raised, I would say, between 100 and 110 million euro. But a lot of that is still in the bank. Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, so you explained uh, that uh, you can print uh, these uh, solar cells that you have come up with on different surfaces. Is Are there any other differences between uh, exager cells and the traditional uh, solar cells we can see um, around uh, around cities?
3: Yeah, this is a silicon-free technology. So this is not the silicon solar cell. This uh, technology is called the dye-sensitized solar cell. So we have a color, a dye uh, that absorb the light, like artificial photosynthesis, you can also call it. And the resemblance is that we have, the, in the nature, you have the green on the leaves, the chlorophyll, and that absorb light photons. We also we could use chlorophyll, but it has a very short lifetime. So we use other dyes, other we can do different colors, and then we absorb the light under almost any light condition. We will be able to convert light energy to electrical energy like photosynthesis, you know, shade, indoor, diffuse light, suboptimal light, and from all different light angles uh, as well. So even when the light comes from the side, we don't need to trace or track the the sun like uh, other technologies do.
0: Right, so, and, how about, and how about the efficiency? Uh, how different is the efficiency from the traditional silicon-based uh, mm-hmm. cells?
3: So if you look at the application areas, with what we are targeting, for example, integrated into headphone, which you use mainly uh, maybe indoor. You have it sometimes in the car, sometimes you walk outside, and so on. So in these suboptimal light levels where we are operating, we are uh, better than traditional silicon, roughly roughly twice as good as flexible amorphous silicon, which is the classical one that you use. If you look at pure power production, which we don't target, there the traditional silicon is almost double as double uh, twice as good as we are. So we don't we don't target that at all for power production. That can we have left that to the Chinese big manufacturers, but we will integrate in the products that you would buy and use in your life. Right. So
0: these uh, uh, cells they are easy to print uh, they are flexible. Uh, they can take different colors. Uh, but how easy are they to let's say connect to the existing device as a battery or a power source?
3: Yeah. So at this point we're starting with the. Uh, Full integration, which means that you will buy them with this with the powerful already integrated in the products, and that's going to be the case the first years. I would say at the moment, we have a very big, we have only announced, I think, three different customers, Uh, but we have a very, very large pipeline. Now, all the big companies are coming to us. Actually, we have announced the JBL headphone. Mm -hmm. And so when you buy it, it will have power foil in the headband. It will just be integrated by itself already. Then we also announced a smart helmet together with a Swedish helmet manufacturer, POC, P-O-C, that was also going to be released this year. That's a smart bicycle helmet. Mm -hmm. And we have also announced a partnership with ABB for robotization and IoT products. We have also more commercial agreements that we haven't published yet or announced yet. Uh, So um, we're going to have three different products on the shelf this year, again, with the reservation for for the virus. But that's the the plan on our side. Absolutely.
0: Right. So if we talk about the JBL uh, product, then just just for me to understand, really, how long would it take to fully charge uh, these uh, uh, headset Uh, through the exo cell
3: actually it will charge all the time that's the point so it charges uh, all the time whenever there's light it will charge so if you would like to use it as a charger i I can't uh, say exactly on jbl because the numbers are a bit secret but i can take another generic answer sure a typical headphone if you have it uh, and you go out in the sun. You really want to use it as a charger. Let's say you you need to. I don't know. You're gonna go on a, be on an airplane or whatever. You want to charge it up. So 20 minutes in the sun, 15-20 minutes would be enough for you to have one hour of listening. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's sort of the currency that we're dealing with. That's what the customers care about. Okay. Because you know, if you take, you take a walk to 7-Eleven? You buy a coffee, 10 minutes, and you walk back. Then you know you have one hour listening on the train later. That's good. Or if you you walk to the train or whatever you do, so it sort of adds up during the day. So normal a normal user won't have to bother. It will always be fully charged, right? So you won't you not need to, you will almost never you won't deplete the battery, unless you fly to Hong Kong. I don't know, 13 hours complete darkness and then and then back because <laughs> you have you have like 20 30 hours of listening. Typically on a headphone nowadays, mm-hmm. which means which means you have many days of just recharging it.
0: Right. Yeah. This sounds this sounds really interesting, really exciting. And uh, what are the other devices, let's say, that you envision as suitable for this sort of technology?
3: So we're tar- we're looking at broadly across the consumer electronics industry to start with. I mean, uh, headphones, of course, like we said, e-readers, tablets a lot of smart, new smart devices, basically anything with battery inside that you need to recharge yourself. That's one big area. Another, one, another big area is IoT. I think it's going to be huge in the coming years. Everything from uh, the smart helmet that I mentioned to smart uh, hearing protection, smart prote- safety gear, air bracelets, all these things that uh, will improve people's life and safety. That's going to be a pretty big thing. To all the sensors, smart home, we have IoT in the houses, both for consumer and and business-to-business side. Home alarm things, all the different sensors, a gazillion, trillions of sensors uh, everywhere when you start looking at uh, thinking about it. So that's our main areas now: consumer electronics, smart home, IoT, uh, and then we're going to move into some other stuff uh, coming years. Cool. Okay, yeah. so we've
0: talked about the company, we've talked about the product. Let's talk a, a little bit about you as an entrepreneur, as a founder. So, if I, is this something? Uh, is this invention? Is this something that you uh, were involved with before you started the company?
3: I started it based on a patent that I had acquired from a Spanish professor. Right. Who? Well, he acquired. He became part of the company. Uh, but then I was fortunate enough to f- to find my partner here, Dr. Henrik Lindström, who is the one I've built this company with. Uh, employ- he was my first employee after uh, a few, some months. Since then, he has completely renovated everything, and now we're we are uh, have our business completely based on on the family of patents that he has developed. So it was I'm I have a, I have a background as entrepreneur since the age of fifteen. I started my first company when I was fifteen, and I have had many different companies uh, over the years, I still have uh, quite a few that I'm involved in uh, on the ownership side, but now this, I'm CEO here, this is where I spend my time only. Right.
0: So when you started Exeter, did you know that it's going to take more than 10 years before you're able to ship the first commercial product?
3: No, I was completely ignorant of the fact that it takes 10 to 15 years to develop a deep tech company, to to full production. Maybe that was good (laughs) in retrospect. (laughs) (laughs) And it's with extremely low likelihood succeed and ten to fifteen years. It's a tough bet to take when you're I was I was twenty nine. No, I was thirty sorry, I was thirty two when I started and uh,
0: and how how has it been like what uh, what does it make you feel over the years like the highs the lows what is it like to have a journey this long between the idea and the product because this sounds like something the very opposite of what we are used to, and when we're talking about startups, right? Because startup is usually you have you have an idea, you iterate, you try to bring the product to the market as soon as possible, you find the product market fit, and so on and so forth. Everything is fast, everything is rapid, and in this case, it's ten years of preparations.
2: What is yeah, it like? Yeah,
3: yeah, it's crazy in many ways. You need to find you need to develop tools or like a mindset where you can celebrate small winnings along the time along the way. Because you can't wait, you know, ten, twelve years to celebrate something. Then you you die on the on the way doing it. But it's it's very. I think you need to have a strong faith in what you do. You need to be convinced that this can change a lot of people's lives and it can make a difference and be economically viable, of course. You need to set up goals that you sort of target during the way. You need to have good people to work with. You need to love what you do. Otherwise, you can't do this for ten years. It's just impossible. But it, it's strange. It's strange when you compare it to, like, like you mentioned the the new setup with this. You know, especially digital companies or like fast, rapid prototyping. I get something out, market fit, and all that. It's Just completely opposite. But it's the same for everyone. You know. When I realized it was going to take ten, fifteen years, for probably four, five da- years down the line, maybe three, I realized, okay, if this is a ten to fifteen year, year uh, journey, we're on year three. I wonder how the people doing on year nine are doing. How are they feeling? Because in for me, it was terrible when I realized it first time. Uh, but now, when we are in year eleven, I'm I'm good. I'm not happy. If I'm not. Uh, how should I put it? I'm thinking of the ones who are in year three, and I'm thinking, well, we we can be a good example. You know, it can be done. It can be done, and we did it. I'm going to help the companies that are on year two or three or four. Maybe we can give them some advice or help them financially or do partnerships that no one did with us. We, because I I we have done this journey. I think we have a lot to contribute to help other companies to actually become to increase their probability of success, especially in the deep tech sector. Because it's, And we also know you can't hide. You can't hide for 10, 15 years. You can't. And no one can come like five minutes to 12 or five minutes past 12, like in the app industry, if you have a great app. And tomorrow someone else releases an even better app. Shit, you know, you can't know. But we know in our business, we know because you need to file patents. You need to invest like 100 million euro. In the US, it would have been like $1 billion probably. Uh, you need to have a lot of smart people involved and engaged, and and uh, over a long period of time, and all these things they just make commotion, it just creates commotion. You can't hide; people will know that you're out there. So, no one can come and just come next in the next this year or in a few months from nowhere and say, Hey, we also have we have also developed a new solar cell here. We have a factory where we can produce 30 million headphones per year and we have better efficiency than you and we have all these patents. That's not, not it can't be done. So, once we're on the sort of now we're on the positive side of the, of the scale, I would say, you know, year 11, we know that we can do it. We have the factory. And smart people are coming to us, and all the big customers are now coming to us. And when we have released the first and uh, products and and uh, announced the first partnerships, so, but it's very strange and it's very difficult to fund as well. How do you get someone to invest? Okay, we might succeed in ten years. Thanks for giving your money, <laughs> your money. I mean, so you need to invest your own money, put your own money where your mouth is, and then have like concrete goals on the way that you can share, and you need to find other values than just financial return. So our investors, we have given them a lot of knowledge. We have invited them to our factory, to our sort of universe. And we have had their staff here for training, for education, and we've helped them in their business to become category leaders in what they do. And so so that's how we need to work very close with this kind of patient capital investors that we have found.
0: Yeah, this is really this is really a hell of a journey, I have to say. And uh, then just to wrap this up, uh, speaking of the other companies and all, what's the competition like for you? Who do you compete with it at all?
3: Well, the, the the competition is is mainly based on flexible amorphous silicon, which is the use that you can see in some military applications or like other flexible solar cells, but they are. And they all look the same. They have the silver lines crossing the surface. You're very limited to this stripe, reddish, dark red design with stri- silver stripes crossing it. And, and like I said, we have the, almost double the efficiency. What to what they ha- have, but above all, our design features they can't. We they can never be, you know, in the product that we are uh, targeting and what we're in that we're entering into. So. Yeah, at this moment, looks, I mean, I'm 100% sure many, many, many smart people, probably thousands, are researching on similar things or good things in the labs right now. And they are then on year maybe one or year, maybe year two. And sooner or later, they will need to reveal, to show themselves, to be able to scale up or to come somewhere. And then we're going to be here and tell them, look, we can be your partners. We can help you. If you have an innovation, we can take it to industrial scale and try it in our industrial setting. And if it qualifies, we can buy this from you, you can become a partner to us, or we can em- employ you, or we can fund you. Let's do this together because there's such a huge market, addressable market. And we want to collaborate with all these smart people that are doing fundamental research because we don't do that anymore. We industrialize and we produce power foil here.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And uh, just last, last question, just out of curiosity. Mm. And mm. So you said that uh, you can print uh, these uh, uh, these cells in different colors. Do the colors influence the efficiency?
3: Yes, in general, um, the darker the better. I mean, black absorbs everything. White doesn't absorb anything; it reflects everything. Right. So the colors we are targeting, uh, we're developing them right now. What we offer today is the dark, like Exiger Black, but we are now building our own because we can't source this because no one produces it at scale. So we're building our own now, small production line also for these different colors. And hopefully by the probably end of next year, we'll be able to offer this commercially. And that's quite fast in our uh, business. It will have a slightly lower effect. It will have slightly lower efficiency, I should say. Uh, the brighter colors you get but not not a very big difference so it's completely feasible still and still better than anyone else so it's going to be great
0: right so where are we coming with this do you envision the future in which nobody really cares that much about
3: charging their portable devices definitely definitely I'm, i'm sure that our i don't know if you have kids i have three boys but I think that the young generation that grows up with this self-charging capacity, they will just expect all the devices to have this self-charging capacity, that you can place your device in a bright spot. People will become light conscious, I think. You will place your headphones in, on a, in a brighter spot in the room than in a darker spot, just because you know, then you will have one hour, two hour more listening, which is convenient. You always want it to be fully charged. Energy independence is a massive drive driving force here. People, especially young people, they don't want to be dependent on plugging your thing into the wall. It's just old school. They don't want that. And they also want to help to contribute, you know, to a cleaner planet, to to restore the carbon balance of this planet. And if you can, I mean, you know, in, in 2017, the U.S. households, they spent 143 terawatt hours of electricity to charge and power consumer electronics. This is the same amount of electricity that Sweden used as a nation that year. So it's a massive amounts of electricity that you just used because that's how uh, uh, I mean that's you know you need to charge your devices and power your devices. But if you can do this just by using the ambient light around you, even if it's just a small part of that, it's going to make a difference. So young people they 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 will expect it.
0: Yeah, This is really an exciting future to look, uh, f- look for. Uh, Giovanni, thank you so much. That was it for my questions. So good luck with the first launch uh, in these uh, tough uh, tough times. Best of thank luck you. with uh, everything.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, nice to meet you.
0: So Natalie, what do you think? Are you excited about not having to charge at least some of your gadgets?
1: I mean I think it sounds like a very exciting technology it's one that I've been following for a long time um also one that SoftBank has put its stamp of approval on so um depending on if you agree with, with, with what they find or not uh, but I think it definitely sounds very exciting it's one of those technologies from the future that we're always really excited um to 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 find to learn more about something that is a surprise, is different, um, and has some real potential to being a, a complete game changer.
0: I really like this idea of being light conscious. That you, that that's at some point we will just kind of work out this uh, habit of knowing where the light is and where to put our gadgets uh, uh, to have them to have them charging in the background. That's yeah. a, that, that's like a big. So that's that's a, that's a much bigger shift than it might sound, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely in, in the way we behave. Yeah, so I think that's something we always get really excited about when looking at technology. What actually is not just an improvement of what we already have, but something that actually uh, changes behavior and changes practice that people are engaging in. And this definitely sounds like one of those technologies. Be interesting to see when it's in the hands of consumers, um, but uh, looking forward um, to seeing them develop for sure.
0: Yeah. I'm not I'm not really fond of uh, JBL uh, headsets, but maybe maybe I will uh, try to get my hands on one later this year to check this one out. And before we wrap things up for today, let me take another minute for a shout-out to our sponsor, Lark. If you are managing a remote team, and many of us do these days, you want to try Lark. It's got everything you need. It's got chat, video conferencing, docs, calendar. You can sign up for free and receive 200 gigabytes of cloud storage, calls for up to 100 participants, and chat groups of up to 5,000 people with searchable messages. Get started for free today at larksuite.com tech. Again, that's L-A-R-K-S-U-I-T-E dot slash D-E-C-H-E-U. Thank you, Lark, for supporting TechEU podcast. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering is done by Sound Pulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and I hope to uh, have you uh, on the podcast again soon.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Andre.
0: Wherever you are, we hope you can stay safe and take care of yourself and the people around you. Have a good week, and I'm going to talk to you later this week for a special episode. Bye-bye.